Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. Well, this morning, to kind of get us started and, and get us focused on what we're going to be talking about, um, I'm going to do a little slideshow for you, okay? And, and here's the deal. The question is, as we put people's faces up on the, on the screen here, the question is, who would you trust? Okay, and we're going to kind of do a yay-boo thing, all right? So if the person up on the screen, you know, someone you would trust, you say, yay? Yay! Come on. You really trust them. Yay, okay. And if it's somebody that you don't trust, you say, boo. Okay, all right. I think you can handle this one. All right. So we're going to put these up here. I'm just going to, you know, just, just let me know what your response is when you get first response. All right, so first one, a, a policeman. Yay! A fireman. Superman. Taliban. (laughs) Michael Jordan. Michael Jackson. (laughs) You're getting the hang of this. An eye doctor. Dr. Kevorkian. (laughs) George W. Bush. Oh, a little mixed... I knew that was risky there. I don't know. Kim Jong-il. Oprah Winfrey. (laughs) There were a lot of male boos and a lot of female yays there. I don't know. (laughs) Dr. Phil. Judge Judy. Judges on American Idol. (laughs) Jessica Simpson. Homer Simpson. OJ Simpson. (laughs) This is too much fun. Uh, How about these guys? Frontliners. Uh, Who are they? That's a Christian rap group. Okay? Hey, okay, now they're okay. All right. Rick Warren. Pope Benedict. All right. How about this guy? That was Brian's idea to throw that one in there. Here's the idea, because it really helps us focus in on what we're going to be looking at this morning. The thing is this, our idea of people always affects the way that we look at them. Our preconceptions, our assumptions, the way that we look at people, this, we, all carry, we all carry in our minds a picture of a person. And that picture always determines how we see them. If the picture is true, then it can enhance and deepen a relationship Because a person turns out to be who I thought they were, who I thought I could get along with. If the picture is false, then that picture can get in between a relationship between me and the person. For instance, if I assume that somebody is trustworthy and they prove not to be trustworthy and dishonest, well, then I set myself up. I set myself up to be conned and deceived and and possibly hurt. By the same token, 
If I assume that someone is dishonest when in truth they are trustworthy, then I miss out on a relationship because I never take those first steps of trust to begin the relationship. And that's how it works. This picture that we have in our mind of people always determines how we see them. And the same thing is true when it comes to our picture of God. We all have preconceived ideas of God. Every one of us in this room. Whatever your background, whatever your upbringing, whatever your experience, every one of us in this room have a preconceived idea of God. And very often it is that picture, that preconceived idea that clouds our ability to see and to understand and to trust God as He really is. It's our picture that gets in the way. And the thing is, when we do that, those are the seeds of doubt. Because when I have this picture of God and he turns out not to be what I pictured him to be, it kind of shakes the foundations a little bit. And very often, because of my misperceptions of God, what I end up doing is I blame God instead of my faulty picture of him. See, that's what we do. We can't see him as he is, so we can't trust him as we should. And this doubt, this family of doubt that we're going to talk about this morning is doubt that comes from a faulty view of God or when our faith is out of focus. That's the kind of doubt we're going to look at this morning. And the reason we're going to look at this and the reason we're going through this whole series is so that we would better understand the families of doubt and the types of doubt that there are and so we know how to deal with them because we all struggle with them. So we're going to look this morning at this faith out of focus, doubt that comes from our faulty view of God. And here's the thing is, this type of doubt surfaces when our understanding conflicts with our experience. That's usually when it surfaces. It's when our picture, our assumptions, our understanding conflicts with what we really experience, what we really go through. Let me give you an example of that. Jesus appears to his followers. After his death, after his crucifixion, after his resurrection, he appears to his followers. Matthew 28, 17. And it says, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but... Some doubted. Jesus had taught them. Jesus had explained to them the ways of the kingdom. He had even prepared them for his coming death and his resurrection. He had promised the resurrection. And now here he is standing in front of them. That promise is fulfilled, but their actual experience of it is far beyond their understanding of it. That makes sense? Now, I don't know about you, but if he's standing right in front of me, it makes it really, really tough to doubt. But that's the deal. See, their experience was far beyond their understanding. And so even though they saw him and they recognized him and they worshipped him, they still doubted. Now that's kind of a, a positive example of it. That they were, they were excited and, 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 and um, saw beyond their expectations in a good way. But very often, very often... Those are the things that get in the way. Sometimes it's our past experiences. Our past experiences can cloud our understanding of God. Because who you are and what you've been through will always affect your faith. And thereby it will also affect your doubt. I'll give you an example. I will never, ever again, ever buy a Mazda car. Now, I'm sure they make really good cars. They wouldn't be in business this long if they didn't. But it all goes back to 1982. 
when my wife and I bought our very first brand new car. We had always bought used cars, you know, all of our lives, and we bought our very first brand new car, a Mazda GLC, which was a piece of junk. <laughs> and within two years, we had put more money into it trying to get the thing fixed up than we had, than we had originally spent on it. So in my mind, I do not trust. Now, I am sure, because they're still in business, and people are still buying their cars, and I'm sure there's a lot of people, and if you are a Mazda owner or a Mazda dealer, please don't come talk to me afterwards, okay? <laughs> I'm just telling you, my experience is I do not trust those cars. My experience dictates my belief, my faith in Mazda Motor Company. Your past experiences can cloud your faith. They can cloud your understanding, particularly when it comes to God. If you grew up in a home with an absentee father or an overbearing, domineering father, demanding father, or even maybe abusive father, it is really, really tough for you to read passages like Psalm 103 as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. But if your experience of father has only negative associations, that clouds your ability to understand what your heavenly father is like. If in the past you have suffered through some broken relationships, deep, deep relationships, and they have left you deeply hurt and scarred, what you do is you tend to kind of close up a little bit, and you say to yourself, okay, I will never trust anybody like that ever again. I will guard my heart. I will never make myself vulnerable. And you read in Joshua 1.5 that God says, I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And in the back of your mind, you're saying, yeah, right. Because nobody's that dependable. Not in my experience. And it clouds your ability to really trust God. Because you don't believe anybody's that trustworthy, even God. And if you grew up with a negative church experience or a religious ex- uh, negative religious experience and, and the church that you grew up in or the experience that you've had with religion is all about guilt and shame and demandingly legalistic and there's all kinds of hurdles and hoops that you've got to jump through to prove your worth before God, then it's really, really tough for you to believe and trust in a God of grace and mercy and forgiveness because your experience is all different. And that, by the way, that's why Jesus was harshest with the religious leaders of his time because they were giving a false view of God. And that's why he called them all kinds of really bad names. You brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs, and on and on and on. He said, You crush people with the unbearable religious demands and then you never lift a finger to ease the burden. And if your experience in the past has been that kind of an experience, it's really tough to trust a God of mercy and forgiveness and grace. And though you might ask for God's forgiveness and you might believe that Christ has forgiven you because of his work on the cross, in the back of your mind you keep beating yourself up over this stuff because you don't really believe you could be forgiven. And if you grew up with no, no spiritual background, no church upbringing, no idea whatsoever about God, 
and all you were taught was this is life and you get the most out of it and you make the most of it and you work as hard as you can to do it in this life because this is all there is and that's all you ever understood, then it's really, really tough for you to start thinking about eternity. And it's really, really tough to start thinking about a God who would love me and come after me and pursue me. When my whole bent on life is I got to make it on my own. See, past experiences have an impact on our faith. Maybe, and most of us here, most of us here have probably already taken that first step of faith. We have put our trust in Christ and we have trusted him for, his, for the forgiveness that he offers and we have put our lives in his hands and yet, and yet even with that, there are some times when our faith is challenged and trusted and sometimes it's present circumstances. It's not our past, it's what we're going through right now and the present circumstances of my life right now challenges my ability to trust God. And it's not so much that I have an incorrect view of God so much as an incomplete view of God. I don't fully understand him as I should. I have glimpses of his ways. I think I understand his character, but I don't see the full picture. And so I have these doubts. Anybody here like jigsaw puzzles? Anybody here do jigsaw puzzles? Okay, one of the traditions in our home growing up and actually kind of one of the things that we did when our kids were younger is every Christmas we'd get a new jigsaw puzzle and we'd kind of put it out on the round table there and we'd leave it out there and it stayed out there like the whole Christmas season because that's how long it took us to get through a jigsaw puzzle. <clears throat> and, and I loved it. You know, it's always fun. You walk by, you know, you get hooked and you go for a little while and then you say, ah, I give up and I go on. Um, but in the inevitably, inevitably, I would swear, there would be one piece that I would look at the piece and I would look at the picture on the box and I would say, this piece doesn't go in this puzzle. You ever experienced that? You know, it just, it's the right color, but it's not the right shape. Or it's the right shape, but it's not the right color. It doesn't fit this. This piece does not go with this puzzle until the puzzle is completed. And I went, oh, I guess it does. Because I don't see the full picture. I see the little piece in front of me. And very often, that's what it is. It's our present circumstances that, that confuse us. They don't seem to fit what we think we knew. And so what we're facing doesn't seem to fit, and that brings about doubt. And, and by the way, one of the reasons, one of the reasons why I believe this book to be so trustworthy is because it's not filled with nicey-nice. It's not all happily ever after. It's not all, it all worked out for everybody just the way they wanted and hoped and dreamed for the rest of their life. Warm fuzzies and all that. This book is filled with people who struggled with faith. This book is filled with stories of people who soared and then flopped and believed and then doubted and trusted and then took it back. This book is filled with that because it's a book about real life and real faith and real doubt. And one of the prime examples we have of this kind of doubt is Job. The story of Job is a man in difficult circumstances. The book starts out telling us about this man named Job, who, we, who is called a righteous man. In fact, he is so righteous, he is so righteous, that when Satan comes before God, God says to Satan, he brags about Job, he says, have you seen my servant Job? There is none like him in all the earth. There is none who worships me. There is none righteous like him. Nobody. He's at the top of the list. And Satan's accusation is, well, yeah, because you take care of him. Take away all that stuff from him. 
Take away your blessing from his life. Then we'll see how much he really trusts you. And that's what happens. And his life falls apart. Piece by piece. Just crumbling down. His family. His fortune. His health. His spirits. Everything comes crashing down. And he doesn't understand it. His friends come to help. And they do for the first seven days when they keep their mouths shut. (laughs) But then they start offering advice because this is confusing to them too. They don't understand it. Because Job says, I haven't changed. I'm the same person. What's going on here? And for the next 34 chapters of that book, it's all about guys trying to figure out where did we get this wrong? What's going on here? This doesn't make sense. And there's a little bit of a hint, a little bit of a hint of Job's, I believe, his misperception of God. And it's found in chapter 3. Verse 25, Job says these words, What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. And I think it's just a little bit of a hint of what Job didn't understand. In fact, we're told that Job was so righteous that, that his, his sons and daughters, as they had grown, they would throw birthday parties. I mean, really big blowout birthday parties. And, and Job was so righteous, it says that Job, after those parties, would go and offer a sin offering before the Lord just in case his kids sinned during the party. Okay? That's Job. And yet, in the back of his mind, In the back of his mind, what he doesn't understand, where his confusion is, is he thinks that this relationship with God is a quid pro quo. That God blesses me because I'm good. As long as I stay good, God blesses me. If I mess up, God will punish me. He's punishing me. Where did I mess up? And he didn't. He's the same guy. So then the question is, well then... What's up with God? And that's what he wrestles with for 34 chapters. In the back of his mind, he thinks this is all down to a barter system. He thinks his whole relationship with God is as long as I do the right things and make the right sacrifices and and show how much I'm, then God will continue to bless me. And that's why he's so shaken when he's kept doing all of those things and God is not blessing him. In fact, just the opposite. And what his picture of God is that this is this barter system. This is quid pro quo. If you do it and it works out, God is taking care of you in this life. That's end of story. And God is not personally involved. He is this detached being who is out there somewhere and I just got to stay in line with him. And then everything's cool. And that's not a correct picture of God. And even though all through the book he maintains his integrity and he will not let go of his his faith, though he struggles with it, it comes to the end of the book and God finally speaks. And when God speaks, God doesn't tell him about what was going on behind the scenes. In fact, Job never finds out about that. He never finds out about the conversation that God had with Satan. He never finds out about how God allowed Satan to do all this stuff. He never finds out all the reasons behind it. He doesn't understand all of that because when God speaks, God doesn't answer his questions. What God does do is he says to him, Job, where were you when the earth was formed? 
Where were you when this was created? Do you know about my creation? Do you know? Do you know when the, these animals give birth? And do you know where they live? And do you know how they make it through life? Do you know any of that, Job? Do you know my ostrich? My creation? This goofy bird who has no more sense than to drop her eggs and break them right there because she's so tall. I made that bird. It's some of my best work. Or Leviathan. Or Behemoth. Animals, we don't even know what they are. God does. And God goes on and he speaks about how lovingly he is involved and cares about his creation. And how he makes it rain in the deserts. For no reason at all. Just because he does. Because that's the kind of God he is. And though Job has felt like God has abandoned him and off in the distance and doesn't care and isn't involved and has detached himself completely, God says, no, I've been right here all along. That's what I do. And then Job speaks. And this is what he says. I spoke of things I didn't understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. And then he ends it this way. My ears had heard of you, but now I see you. Something changes in the relationship between Job and God that wasn't there before and is the direct result of his unquestionably difficult circumstances. He doesn't get all the answers, but he doesn't need them anymore. He understands God's got it all under control. So maybe, just maybe, when it comes to this kind of doubt, maybe the problem doesn't lie with God. Maybe the problem lies within us. And so instead of questioning God, maybe we should examine our own perceptions. Maybe we've got it wrong. See, God is more eager to grow our faith than we are. But he wants us to discover him as he really is, not a picture in our mind that we have created of him. He wants us to discover him as he really is. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, Anyone who comes to God must believe that he is real and that he rewards those who truly want to find him. That's what it comes down to. Do I believe he's real? Do I believe he wants me to find him? And sometimes it comes down to, God, I don't understand this circumstance. I don't understand this situation, but I trust you. This doesn't make sense to me, but I trust you. And in that, in that, I think we get a new picture of God, a clearer picture of God. So how do you do that? How do you work through all of that? Well, first thing is, understand, you can honestly face your questions. In fact, if I'm going to go anywhere with this doubt, I need to do that. I need to honestly face up to my questions. I can't ignore them. I can't suppress them. I can't gloss over them because they will stay in the back of my mind. They will be there. They will not go away unless I face up to them. So we've got examples of that. One of Jesus' followers whose name has become synonymous with doubt. His name was Thomas. And what happened with Thomas was he was one of the followers of Jesus that wasn't there when Jesus first appeared. 
And all the rest of the disciples were there, and they tell him, oh, we saw the Lord. He came. It was, it was, you should have been there. You should have been there. And, and he wasn't there. And so he says, listen, I must see it for myself. I must see the nail marks in his hands. I must put my finger where the nails were. I must put my hands into his side. Only then will I believe. And what I love about this is I can identify with Thomas. I can identify with Job. Because in my questions, I say, you know, for it to be real for me, this is what I need. So honestly, face your questions. But face them this way. Instead of just questioning God, question your own perceptions. Ask yourself, are my doubts stemming from baggage from my past? Does my, my, my difficulty in faith here, is this because of some stuff in my past? Just baggage that I've carried in here with me? Or maybe, what assumptions have I made about God that I've gotten wrong? What more do I need to learn? What more does God have to teach me through this? Because see, the thing is, I want to know and to love and to trust God as He really is. Not what I thought He was. I want to know Him as He really is. Oh, there's been times I thought I knew God. And he shook those foundations. And I got to know him better. I thought when I got married, I thought I knew my wife. I did. I thought she really liked roller coasters. I thought she really loved sailing. (laughs) We got married and I found out I don't have to do it anymore. (laughs) I thought I knew her. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. What I've come to discover in her is something I love far more deeply than going on a roller coaster with. Because I decided I didn't want what I thought I had. I wanted to know the real her. And that's the way it happens. You build a relationship and you discover someone as you continue to pursue knowing them. And God can handle your questions. God can handle your doubts if you will be honest about them. He wants the real you to discover the real him. 2 Peter 3.9 says, God is patient because he wants everyone to turn from their sin so that no one would be lost. He writes this to a church that is going through a very, very difficult persecution. And they don't understand, if God is for us, why are we going through this? And why doesn't Jesus just come and clear us all out and take us all home to heaven? Why hasn't it happened yet? Peter says, because God's being patient. God's being patient. He can handle it. He can handle it. Face your questions. Honestly, face your questions. But when you do, examine your questions in the light of Jesus, in the light of Christ. Because it's in Jesus that we see God most clearly. God himself came to us in human form. Os Guinness puts it this way. For the Christian, there is no completely satisfying answer to the question, how may I, know, how can I, how may I be sure of God, that God is there and that God is good, which is not finally anchored in the person of Jesus Christ? Ultimately, that's what it comes down to. Because you see, in Jesus... In Jesus, we see God's compassionate care for the downtrodden and the lost and the hurting. In Jesus, we see God's truth, but God's truth proclaimed 
with grace. It's in Jesus on the cross that we see God's self-sacrificing love and pursuit of us. 1 John 4, God is love. How did God show his love for us? He sent his one and only son into the world. He sent him so that we could receive life through him. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. He is a gracious, loving, pursuing God. And we see that most clearly in the life and ministry and sacrifice of Christ. And what I love is how patient he is. Because even though Peter wasn't there the first time, and he says, okay, this is what it's going to take, Jesus shows up a second time just for Peter. And he says to him, here, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. You cannot trust Jesus if you cannot see his scars. Not literally, but but understanding because that's where it's shown. You cannot trust Jesus unless you see what he has done for you. Because we serve a God not of our own making, not of our own thinking. It's not some vague higher power and believe whatever you want to because all paths lead to God. No. No. There is only one who has demonstrated a self-sacrificing love for you, and that is Jesus Christ. And he says here, look at the scars. And what's interesting, what's interesting is when Jesus offers that to Peter, Peter who said, if I don't see it, I'm not going to believe it, and Jesus says, okay, here, there's no record that Peter actually took the time to look and put his finger in the hole. Because all of a sudden, the things that he thought he needed to believe, he doesn't need anymore. He just falls down on his face and he says, my Lord, my God. (laughs) He thought he needed one thing, but he really didn't. Face your questions, but do so in the light of Christ. And then choose to trust. Choose to trust with questions left over. Last week we talked about this, that the nature of faith is that it involves both the intellect and the will. I need to understand, and I need to examine, and I need to consider so that I can make the choice to follow. And it's both. I need to understand in my intellect and belief so that I can choose to follow with my will. And the thing is, the Christian faith is to be examined. It's to be considered. It's to be studied through. But always understand this. You will never have the answer to all of your questions. You never will. So it really comes down to is, does it make sense? Does it make sense? What does Jesus say? Well, I know the truth about this. All have sinned. All have come short of God's glory. Well, I know that's true. At least I know it's true for me. But then he also goes on and says that the wages of that sin is death. There's a consequence to it. And then Jesus comes along and he dies. Not for his own sin, but for mine. Now I can put my trust in him. Now the question is, does that make sense? Well, I know enough about it to know 
makes sense for me. You will never have 100% assurance. You can go back to the illustration of my wedding. 32 years ago, stood in front of my friends, my family, in front of a pastor, and I made a pledge and a vow to my wife. Now, going into that day, I had questions. I had some insecurities. I know I'm human. She's human. But, you know, we're both pretty committed to this, and, and we really decided we want to do this, so I think we got about a 90% chance of making this happen. Okay, realistically, about maybe 95, because we're both pretty good people. But what if on that day I stood in front of my friends and my family and the pastor and before God and said, well, okay, I will love, honor, and cherish you 95% of the time. I will make all of these vows with 95% of my heart. Do you think that would have flown with her? (laughs) See, here's the deal. It takes the full commitment to make the knowing possible. There is a point which you will always have those questions and you need to acknowledge that, but you also need to be able to say, it makes sense enough to say, I'm willing to give it in for it. I'm, I'm in. I'm in. See, because of Jesus, eternity is now in play. Jesus himself said to his disciples, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. Someday you will. And Paul wrote later to the Corinthian church, our light and our momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Because of Jesus, it begins to make sense in the light of eternity. It doesn't all work out here on this life. It doesn't all work out within my life and existence on this earth. There is something eternal that God is doing. And that's where it ultimately makes sense. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California. 